We just got done preaching through Colossians. I showed you guys where uh, Colossae was. This The previous letter, Colossians, is to an entire church in Colossae. Uh, Epaphras was a man from Colossae who came and encountered Paul in uh, Ephesus when he was preaching, received the good news there, and then went back home and planted churches in Colossae and Laodicea and Herapolis. They were all in this river basin in that area. And uh, the church was dealing with angel worship and some kind of screwy Gnostic practices, which Colossians was written to correct. But then one of the members of the church in Colossae, maybe the owner of the house that they lived in, was a, or that they worshipped in, was uh, Philemon. And Philemon was not just a Christian, he was a slave owner, owned a slave named Onesimus. Onesimus, it, it, we're going to read this uh, letter today. Onesimus seems to have been a bad slave, not a very good worker, and he left without permission. He stole himself away. He escaped, and he seems to have stolen some stuff along with himself. Somehow he found himself in Rome, which is not very close. You know, Colossae is in modern-day Turkey. Rome is in modern-day Italy. He found himself in Rome in Paul's company, and Paul converted him. Gave him the good news. Onesimus is now a believing uh, person. And this letter is written by Paul to be sent with the hand of Onesimus to his master. He's returning this slave to him. It's a weird letter. We don't have slavery today, right? Ah, you are a refined people. You knew what I was going to do at the second part of this. It's a weird, it's a different context, but it, it has more to do with us than you would think. Um, so we're going to walk through the letter. I'm going to explain some stuff along the way, and then I've got some commentary on modern-day um, slavery that hits closer to home than maybe, maybe a lot of people know. Maybe you're all very educated, and it'll, if, if so, then you won't disagree with me at all. It'll be great. Let's read through the letter, and then uh, we'll see what the Lord is saying to us today. Verse 1, Paul. A prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. Also to Appia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier. And to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, let's just stop there for a second. Paul is... He is a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He's also a slave of Christ Jesus. He signs many of his letters that way. I think it's interesting he doesn't do it that way in this letter. But here he says he's a prisoner of Christ. He's quite literally a prisoner of the Roman Empire at this point in Rome, in a Roman prison. And he's been receiving care from Onesimus, who he will talk about here. And then he call, he's referring, he's addressing this to Philemon. It's almost certain that Ephia is his wife. It's almost certain that the church is meeting in their home. And then it calls Archippus a fellow soldier. They are not actually worldly soldiers. They're not fighting in the Roman legions. Rather, they are soldiers of Christ. So he's saying, a prisoner of Christ, I'm a soldier of Christ. These are metaphysical realities where the actual worldly reality is. He's a prisoner of the Roman Empire, and he's a civilian in the Roman Empire. He's not a, a soldier. So this is to three adult Christians that are in leadership in the Colossian church, one of whom, the male, is the owner of Onesimus. And then he asks a blessing upon them. Grace and peace to you. Verse 4, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers. Have we heard him say this to anyone else before? 
says it very commonly, I don't think he's lying. I think he had a very active prayer life. He's giving thanks to God for them uh, because they're actually true believers. Because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. He's letting them know how, how he prays about them. I, I don't do it very often, but sometimes whenever I'm praying for y'all, right when I get done praying for one of you, I'll send you a text saying, I prayed this for you this morning. And I think it, it's really nice to know someone's praying for you. As Spurgeon said, no one can do me a better favor than to pray for me, you know. And that's what he said. I'm praying for you all the time. I'm giving God thanks for you. And here's what I'm praying for you. I'm praying that God, your faith will be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing that we all share. There's not many better blessings you can ask on that for somebody. Verse 7, your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. So Philemon is a man of privilege. He has not only the disposable income to buy and own slaves, but also this, this phrase here, refresh the hearts of the Lord's people. He's shown material blessings to believers. He has is, he is, uh, shared his wealth with the church there. So he's a generous man. He's a gracious man. And Paul is appealing to that in this writing. He's, uh, verse 8, he says, Therefore, that means what came before matters here. You're a good and holy man. I love you. You love me. Therefore, although in Christ... I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. So one sermon in this, I'm not going to camp out on this a long time, but the nature of love does not coerce, it does not force, it gives people a choice. Now Paul is going to say, here's the right choice, I hope you make it, but he is not going to rob him of that choice and say, I am an apostle of the Lord Jesus, you will do this or you are damned forever. He doesn't do that. He says, I'm not going to force you. I'm not going to order you. I'm going to give you a choice. I appeal to you on the basis of love. What is love? Love is going to be a non-coercive choice. Love is going to be setting the captive free. Spoiler alert, he's going to ask for him to give Onesimus back. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. So he's writing about this slave that escaped, and he's saying, I want you to receive him differently than you last saw him. He's now my son. We've gone through a, a, religi a, a religious, a spiritual shift of a relationship I am now to him a father, he is to me a son. Now, Jesus tempers some of this. He says, never call any man father. You know, and this is one of the reasons that I have a hard time with the Roman Catholic Church. They call their priest father, and that goes against explicit scriptural instruction. I know they have their way of doing things. But here he's not saying, he calls me father, I'm literally his father. He says, I'm a spiritual father to him. And he's written to entire churches and said, well, you remember 1 Corinthians. He says, I am your spiritual father. That's how he identifies. That's how they should honor him and receive him. So he's saying, now he's my son and you need to receive him as this. Paul has a high status in the church. Remember, he was considered one of the apostles. He was a very high rank and you better treat the son of a high rank person well. Remember, does God the Father have a son? 
Jesus. Kiss the son, lest the father be angry, right? We should treat the son of beloved ones well. Paul was beloved. He's making clear you're to receive Onesimus. Let's pretend that uh, someone stole from you and all of a sudden you got it back. You have two options. You can be really grateful and go, man, what a boon. I'm so glad to get this back. Or you can go, I can't believe you stole it in the first place. Oh, I'm going to get you now. And Paul is anticipating that jealous, angry response, that entitled response. And he's saying, might not should do that with someone I love. Verse 12, I am sending him, Onesimus, the slave. Oh, and I forgot to focus on the name Onesimus means useful or profitable. So he said in verse 11, formerly he was not profitable to you. He was useless, but now he has become useful to both of us. So before he was a bad slave, he stole stuff. He was no good. He's coming back to you. What a treasure, but he's a different guy. Okay, so verse 12, I'm sending him who is my very heart back to you. Is, is Paul being confusing at all about how much he loves Onesimus? No, he's being very clear. He's, this is more than vouching for him. This is saying, I've adopted him, he's my son. How you treat him is how you treat me. Which, by the way, is how Christ Jesus treats you and me, right? This is mirroring a relationship between Christ and you. You, who were once unprofitable and dead in your sins and an ungrateful person, he has liberated and saved, and now you are beloved to him. You are his heart. And because of that, you should be treated in a certain way. And if people don't treat you in that way, God will judge them and kill them for all eternity. Do we know this? Apparently some of us don't know this. You are royalty. You have been adopted into God's holy family. You are beloved and cherished by him. And the way that people treat you impacts their salvation. That's why in Romans... We're told not to seek vengeance for ourselves because vengeance belongs to God and he will repay. And in Revelation, whenever you hear the saints praying to God, how long, God, how long are you going to make us wait before you kill those who killed us? The way you're treated matters. You are a vessel of the Holy Spirit. God takes vengeance upon those who harm his beloved. And Paul is similarly going to take a threatening tone towards Philemon if he thinks about laying a hand on Onesimus. Um, I think we're at verse 11. I said 11, I meant 13. Thank you, though, 13. Um, I would like, I would have liked to keep him with me so he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. This is kind of a guilt trip. He's saying, you should be here taking care of me. Back in these days, they didn't have, like, government money that was used to feed the prisoners. They would just keep them chained up, and if, if they couldn't find somebody to come in and feed them, they would just starve. So there are different believers that have come in and they're giving him food while he awaits trial. He's saying, Philemon, you're a man of means. You should be here taking care of me, but you're not. Thank God you have a slave who is. I would like for him to stay here and take care of me, but legally he belongs to you, so I'm sending him back to you. Verse 14. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Once again, this sermon on the nature of love. Love does not force Love gives a choice. Love people, lets people screw up. He's saying, I hope you don't screw up, Philemon. I'm giving you a choice. Verse 15, perhaps the reason Onesimus was separated from you for a little while was so that you could have him back forever. No longer as a slave, though. Better than a slave. 
as a dear brother. That's quite a concept. This man was once bad property in the eyes of this guy, and now he's returning back as a cherished brother in the faith of Christ Jesus. A shift has occurred. That's an understatement. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. Can you imagine some guy stealing a bunch of stuff from you, including himself, and then coming back with a letter saying, I'm a treasure for you now. You have to love me. And that's a really hard decision for Philemon. How, how many of us love getting stolen from? Doesn't it feel great for someone to steal from you? There is a deep, dark place in every person's brain when you get stolen from that just, oh, I can't believe someone stole from me. I'm lucky we live right around from the sheriff's station. Nobody messes with us. But I know a lot of you have gotten stolen from, and isn't that a deep, dark part of your brain when you get stolen from? Oh, it's just a bad... I used to go into the jail and talk to guys who stole from each other, and they hated each other. Oh, they hated a thief. And sometimes they were a thief if they needed drug money. This is the cycle of hatred that the world does, that when you come into Christ, that cycle discontinues because we were once dead in our sins. We were once thieves from Christ. We were once dead in darkness, and he forgave us, so we forgive others. I, I preach this message like every week, right? That's why I say it like I'm a broken record, because I am, because we need to hear it over and over. Time and time again, people wrong us, and we go, I can't believe he wronged me. And then we need that immediate reminder I, I wronged God too. He's forgiven me. I can forgive others. We have to go through that time and time again until we are so reformed that the moment someone wrongs us, we don't even have it in us to hate them. We instantly extend forgiveness as Christ does continually from the cross. Let's, let's go back in. Verse 17. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. I've already talked. This is how Jesus does his love with us. We become extensions of him. The, Christ, the, the church is the body of Christ. Verse 19, if he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. That's quite a thing to do. Charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. I love how bold he is in this letter, right? Because, of course, salvation doesn't have monetary value. You can't pay for salvation. That was, that, that was Simon Magus' uh, sin in Acts of the Apostles. He wanted to pay Peter money for salvation, and then Peter condemns him right then and there. The, it's a priceless gift that salvation is, and Paul extended that gift to the church in Colossae. Paul is saying... If it wasn't for me, you would still be dead in your sins. You can't even pay me back for that. There is no money price you can put on that. But if you still need to hold some money against somebody for what Onesimus stole from you, you can put it on my account. I'll pay it back to you. Now, he probably doesn't mean that literally because Paul is literally in prison and he can't make any money. He was a tent maker by trade, but you can't make tents and sell them from prison. So he's saying, put it on my tab even though I can't clear it. He's willing to go into debt for the sake of putting others free. Did you know in the, the, Lord's, the, the Lord's Prayer, we usually say, and forgive us our trespasses, right? As we forgive those who trespass against us. The Greek word there is actually better translated as debts. Forgive us our debts as we have our, forgiven our debtors. Jesus said that we should give to those who ask of us without expecting to be repaid. There are monetary standards placed on believers that we don't like because 
We like our money. We like holding on to our money. And if I'm going to give money, I sure better get it back with interest, right? The biblical term for that is called usury. It's not really a good thing. Now, is that to say that we shouldn't pay back debts? Absolutely not. Paul says, oh, no man anything but to love one another. Debt makes slaves of us all, and I'll come back to talking about this in a minute. But what Paul is doing here, he's saying, add it to my account and don't hold it against him. And did you know that's what Jesus does with us? You and I have a debt that we can never repay. And he comes to the father and says, Jeffrey put Jeff, uh, Father, put Jeffrey's tab, debt on my tab. And he can pay what is owed time and time again. The blood of Christ Jesus is enough to atone for all sins. Amen? So because of what he's done for us, we similarly can do this for others. Now, there's a legitimate conversation to be had. Do we do it for everybody? You know, I'm, I'm personally not of the mind that Christians just need to cancel everybody's debt no matter what. I am of the mind that when people are in the body of Christ, we should be helping them to get free of whatever oppresses them, enslaves them. And debt is one of those things. I'm also pretty clear that when we have received love and care from the church, that if we don't receive, uh, return that love and care, things go bad and wonky. So within the church of Christ, yes, there are people who receive charity for a time, but if they stay, they also become people who relieve others from debt. I like to think that Onesimus, his debt was canceled. This is me just imagining. It doesn't say here. I like to imagine his debt was canceled, and then with, for the rest of his life, he covered the debts of others. I would like to imagine that's what he did through the church. It's possible that Philemon here did not receive Onesimus back the way that Paul said. It's possible he read this letter and went, Psh, that's stupid. You stole from me. Here's a chain for your neck. I'm going to thrash you. You're a slave till you die. He could have done that. I don't know. It doesn't tell us. Could have been that Onesimus turned back into a worthless slave and a dishonest person and stole. We don't know. It doesn't tell us. All we've got is this perfect picture of what Christian love looks like in the Christian church. Verse 17 again. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention, you owe me your very self. Don't you love to hear that? You owe me. I hate hearing that. But if it's true, it's true. You owe me. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. You know, here's one thing I love. You know, I, I know nobody has a spouse like this, but some people have spouses. They want you, something from you, but they're not going to tell you what they want. You just need to magically know. And if you don't give it, they're mad at you. I love a partner that tells you exactly what they want so you can give it to them. Paul here is saying, refresh my heart. You know how you could please me? Be good to my son here. All he has to do, one of my kids was having a hard day this morning. Oh, everything was so bad. I said, just do what I say and everything's going to be great. And he did what I said, and everything was great. And I told you which kid it was. <laughs> and that's the word of God here. You know, we're in a bad place. We want to do things our own way. You know what? You just shut that part of your brain up. Just do what it says. And here in this case, uh, Philemon was told to set Onesimus free so that he could come back and serve Paul. Verse 21, I'm confident of your obedience. This is quite a, a thing to say. I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. Here's how great you are. You do even better at obeying me than I'm even asking. He had a way of, of words, didn't he? Very confident here. I sure hope he got his way. 
I sure hope that Philemon was terrified to do anything other than what was said here. Verse 22, and one thing more, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. That's a threat. He's saying, right now I'm in prison. I can't really do anything other than write you, but I'm going to come visit you. And I expect that you've done what I've said. So I'm not going to force you. I'm not going to give you an order, but oh boy, I feel sorry for you if I show up and, and you haven't done it. Verse 23, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. So do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. We talked about all of those in Colossians. So um, if you weren't here for that, you can just go back to the church's podcast where we have all this stuff. Verse 25, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. So what does this have to do with us today? How am I making better time than in Delaware? This is awesome. I only had seven minutes left in Delaware at this point. I have full 10. I'm going to take a full 10. Because here's what, so here's, and I've talked about this before. We people are self-defending, right? And when we come to the scriptures, one of these dances we love to do is, oh, things were so different back then. This applied to them and not to me. Oh, those people were so ignorant back then. Oh, they were so barbarians, really. We're much more civilized today. We don't need this. You know, this was an ancient world with slavery. They still had slavery back then. We don't have slaves today. Pat, pat, pat. We don't need to hear any message like this. So I've already focused on the parts of the message that do apply to us today, namely the nature of love. We say we love people, but how many people are we really giving a choice to love us versus forcing them to? It's one thing if you're talking about children. It's another thing if you're talking about a spouse, coworker. Are you using coercive force in anything that you're doing? Are you forcing people to do other than they would choose? Or are you giving people a choice? So this applies to employers. You know, modern, ancient slavery does correspond, not one-to-one, -one, but it has to do with employers today. Are you good to your employees? Do you acknowledge them as being made in God's image? Especially others who are believers, do you see them as brothers or do you see them cogs in a bigger machine that you're responsible for? Humans aren't property, are they? Even if the law says that they are, even if you're within your rights to treat them that way, people are made in God's image and especially Followers of Christ Jesus need to be treated with dignity. So for those who manage other people, this is important. For people who have a spouse or children, other people under your authority, you know, we talked about this last week in the household code in Colossians. The way you treat people matters. I feel like I've been clear on that one. Let's move on. Um, the main thing I wanted to make sure I talked about today was the nature of slavery and uh, people that are living in slavery. And I don't want to be too loose with this, but a slave is basically someone who is coerced into working whether they not want to or not. In the ancient world, let's be clear, all races oppressed and enslaved others. White people didn't invent it. In fact, there's a whole ethnic group of white people called Slavs. They're called that because most of them were slaves at one point. Slav, slave, they're Eastern European, they were enslaved. White people know what it is to be enslaved. Black people know what it is to be enslaved. Native Americans know what it is to be enslaved. Asians and all of them have also practiced slavery on people they have conquered and on people who've gotten into so much debt that they can't get out. So one of the cool things about our nation is we don't have debtor's prison. 
That's something coming from England. If you got in debt, they could put you in prison until you somehow paid it. That's something known in almost every culture. We don't have debtors prison in America, and everything is great here, right? No. No. No, everything's not great because you can't just make things disappear, can you? You can't just declare bankruptcy and it all disappears and nobody pays a price. No, everybody eats the things that are not paid. Everybody has to pay a debt that is not covered by the one who owes. And there are many who are under so much debt that what they're doing isn't really living. They're just living under oppression. They might as well be enslaved. When you talk about education debt, I lived with a girl out of undergrad who had $100,000 worth of debt to American University. She never even got a degree from there. She dropped out after a couple years. Can you imagine not having a degree? She was working for a, an AmeriCorps nonprofit that I was in. She wasn't making that money back. She's probably still in debt today. You can't declare bankruptcy on education debt. That's not living, man. Now, I don't want to conflate. Slavery across the world was cruel, cruel, cruel. These people had no defense. If they had a cruel slave master, oh boy, they could be tortured every day, beaten every day. They could be uh, not just tortured and beaten, sexually assaulted. Their family members that they had could be sold off. We had that in this nation for 100 years, right? 150? I don't, uh, I should do my math. A little over 100 years. No, well, if it's before nationhood, it's like 200, 250 years. And the weird thing that happened here that didn't necessarily happen anywhere else was it became racially charged, right? First, we enslaved Native Americans, and then there was an Atlantic slave trade where we brought in uh, folks from Africa. And it became, you know, white people are free, and black people are slaves, and we had all this racism around it. That was kind of new. I mean, I'm not going to say it didn't exist in the ancient world, but it really became so big here that it still hasn't been undone. So that, that's kind of where we lie in the, the wake of this stuff. And I would say we have no right to pat ourselves on the back about not having that anymore. I would say that for a couple reasons. One is because there are more slaves in the world today than there's ever been. Some of them are in this nation. Some people, oh, we made that illegal. Yeah. Criminals don't care about what's legal. That's what makes them criminals. And if you don't know what's going on on the southern border, it is by definition a humanitarian crisis. There are cartels that are, that are bringing in thousands of people that are going to be slaves, sex slaves, slaves in uh, agricultural operations underground. Uh, did you know that we have land that's owned by non-Americans, overseen by non-Americans, that we don't have the money to investigate their slave labor on? It's very common. There are probably thousands, tens of thousands of slaves in the United States of America right now that we could do something about if we wanted to. For some reason, we don't. And you know how we import all these really cheap goods from all over the planet? And man, it's amazing the thing that you can, you can buy stuff for so cheap. Most of that's slave-made. I'm not going to say most of that. A lot of it is. We don't know. We don't have transparent reporting policies on that stuff. We pat ourselves on the back and say, well, we made it illegal here, and where it comes from is not our concern. It absolutely is. It absolutely is. We might have outlawed slave labor. We benefit from it in so many ways, it's silly that we congratulate ourselves on eliminating this thing that is still so influential in the world uh, economy that we're doing very little about. So, and I, I don't want to turn into one of these globalist things. You're not a Christian unless you have the right stance on a global thing. I think what Christianity is about is about here and now. 
And what I wanted us to be mindful of, what I wanted to, to, to really push us on is there are people who live around us that, no, they're not legally slaves. They, they are technically free people, but they're not free. They're, they're under so much debt and oppression, they might as well be slaves. And even if they don't have monetary debt, there are a lot of people that just can't function. And they're avoided, and they're kept in their homes, and we pay them money through the government just to leave us alone. And they learn just to hang out in their t- homes and watch TV all day. They don't get out. They just sit in their homes, and they do drugs, or they watch TV, or they, they, they who knows what they do. I've been in some of these houses. There are people that live within a stone's throw of this church building that are living subhuman lives in human filth. I don't know if y'all remember, there was uh, over at the Iron Man Apartments a couple years ago, there was a lady wigging out, they called the police, they came into her apartment and they found feces everywhere. And her two boys were passed out on the floor and they couldn't wake them up. As I recall, a three-year-old and a six-year-old. This is far more common today than we know. And when we hear about it, we look away. Oh, how terrible. But this is what's created by a society that says, oh, we're free, we're free, and we'll have happiness from wealth and space and drugs. And so everybody pursues that, and they isolate in their homes, and they're miserable. They take all, all kinds of drugs, legal and illegal, to get over it, and we act like everything's fine, but everything is cratering. Whether or not they're legal slaves, I, I look out at Nowata, I look out at Delaware, and I see mostly slaves. They're slaves to sin, they're slaves to darkness, they're slaves to oppression. They are oppressed. And we are people of freedom, are we not? We're supposed to be. And yet, can we really help out people who are living in that level of darkness? Churches in America have known for a long time for having nothing to say to people like that. For most people coming out of darkness into a church, what they'll get is, can we give you some money? Please stay away. Here's some money. Good luck to you. The church is here for them. And we haven't done our job well, and that's why they are multiplying and we are not. The church is shrinking. The darkness is growing. Not here, I mean, not other places. East Asia, it's going great. Africa, it's going great. Here in America, we've been asleep on the job. We're called to liberty, freedom, love, as we saw in this book. Out of our love for others, we should be liberating people, taking their debt, covering their costs, restoring them to fullness in Christ. If we're not doing that, we're not the church. When I put it that way, is this Bible book relevant? So there, I don't have like a, a ministry to say, we'll all get behind it and we'll do it and then we'll be great. Rather... I want this to impact our daily prayer lives. I want each of you praying for the church, finding ways to minister to those living in darkness out here. I want you to be praying with me for ways that we can create an engine here that that storms the gates of hell and claims people for Christ Jesus, walks them into the light. And I want you to help me do that purification work here in the church because the, the world is always trying to enslave us, right? It's always trying to bring us back into the darkness. This needs to be a place of light. It needs to be a people of light. And that means we need to love each other. We need to minister to each other. We need to to build each other up. People's salvation depends on this. I would love it if in the future we look at this town and we go, you, you saw how Paul was looking at 
Philemon, and he said, uh, you owe me your life, don't you? And I would love it if we could look back from the future on, on this period and look at how many people we brought into the light and go, so many lives have been saved through us. Would you all aim at such a future with me? Would you commit to dealing with some really messed up people that through our efforts we might save some? I know it's Christ who actually saves them, but I'm hoping that as we sit together in this comfortable room right now, that we're also committed to getting out there and working together throughout the week. Are we together? If we're not now, I pray we will be. There's a lot of work to be done.